Welcome everybody far and wide from the Indonesian island of Bali. This is Dr. Miles Neal and today I have a very special guest, Dr. Robert Gilbert, who is a scholar and teacher of esoteric wisdom and science, particularly the European Rosicrucian and Holy Grail tradition. Now, if that doesn't get your imagination stirred, I don't know what will. Very rare, uh, very rare anomaly and like a hidden gem, I would say. Dr. Gilbert is also an expert trainer in sacred geometry and energetic practices for the subtle body. So I'm sure we will cross our metaphysical maps between East and West. That's at least my hope. And he is also the founder of Vesica Institute, where he is, in my estimation, reviving the traditions and initiations of the ancient mystery schools of antiquity with a worldwide audience, something that I hope emerges far and wide at this time of sea change in the epoch, I think this is going to sort of be the, a sign of things to come, more of the more of the population looking to get stuck into some more serious study and uh, esoteric wisdom as we try to evolve our consciousness on the planet. So Dr. Gilbert's work is leading that vanguard, and I'm very, very grateful to have his time here today to discuss his work and the intersection of my work and where we're heading as a species on the planet. So thank you so much, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. I usually start the podcast with a short quote, very pithy, maybe slightly deceptively simple, but I'm sure with your the magnitude of the breadth and depth of your knowledge, you can take it in so many different ways. The quote is, in order to go forward, sometimes we have to go back. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. It's very similar to a saying in the European Rosicrucian tradition, which is, in the beginning was the memory. Now, what this means on a practical level is as a person's beginning to wake up and to become spiritually aware in a particular lifetime, one of the first things that has to happen is to remember, who am I? Why am I here? What did I incarnate to do in the present incarnation? And so, we have to look back to get a sense of what's happening in this physical world that we incarnate into, and also, who am I? Why am I here? What is this all about? So I'm a very big believer in that principle because I, I don't believe that the higher levels of spiritual development are even possible without looking back into an understanding of, of who we are, our own karmic biography, in a sense, to get a sense of where we're going to, how has the past been a prologue to the future? And that's on a macrocosmic scale, the same issue we have with what's happening on the entire planet. We have to understand yeah. some sense of the patterns in the past that have gotten us here to know how we're going to steer things to go, hopefully in an increasingly beneficial direction in the future. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great um, that's perfectly put and, and a great segue, particularly to separate the microcosm of the individual's soul pattern, karmic trajectory, and then to put that in light as a mirror to the cosmic one or the macrocosmic, where our evolution as a species is, where culture is developing, the epoch of, let's say, a zodiac or an archetypal, um, you know, civilization. And so that that would lead me uh, to my next sort of invitation for you. If 
and the broadest picture possible can be from the Rosicrucian mentality philosophy, but could be others because you're so well read and represent a number of esoteric traditions. But are there more meta maps, cosmologies, mythologies, prophetic uh, uh, suggestions that you'd like to you know, bring in now as we sort of construct a dialogue together where we can really find ourselves in a particular kind of place that really helps us orient like almost a map. Are there ones that are really, you know, sort of specific to how you, to how you orient your students or is there one that you'd like to share at the outset of our conversation, a prophecy, a mythology, a cosmological view, for example, the, the yuga system of the ancient Buddhist and, and, and Indian yoga traditions, I think gives us a large map to contextualize where we find ourselves right now in time and place. Maybe there are others in the Rosicrucian or the Western esoteric traditions. I'd invite you to just offer a little taste of that. Thank you. So speaking of the four yugas, one of the very interesting overlaps between different traditions is that many traditions from the Himalayas see the Kali Yuga, the Dark Age, as something that's going to last for a lengthy span of time ahead of us. So we're fairly deep in the process. But it's interesting to see that in the work of Rudolf Steiner, who's perhaps the most advanced Rosicrucian initiate ever to make himself public, and in the work coming from the Babaji lineage of the Himalayas, as expressed by uh, Babaji's student, Sri Yuktasvar, in his yeah. book, The Holy Science. They both describe the Rosicrucian tradition with Steiner, the uh, Kriya Yoga tradition with Sri Yuktasvar. They both describe the end of the Kali Yuga happening in 1899. And so that's, I think, a very interesting perspective. One aspect of this is that the end of a great age is not something that just ends like a snap of the fingers and now everything's completely healed and better and fantastic. There's always a transition period that's very challenging and sometimes it's darkest before the dawn. There can be tremendous challenges happening during this transition period. So if we look at this historically, we can see that amazing things did happen around the year 1899. One aspect of this is that for the first time in human history, we had the, the growth of a mass movement in spirituality around the world, really being based to begin with, with the Theosophical Society and its branches around the world, in which they created places that people could come together to share spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom from multiple traditions, in a free way that wasn't like, well, you're part of this one tradition, and you'll be a part of this for the rest of your life, and this is what we believe, and we don't listen to anybody else. It was really a place to start sharing knowledge that led to what we think of as the New Age movement today. So that was a, a major movement in human history to have what we have today with so many millions of people around the world are not a part of one strict spiritual tradition, they're really on a path of what Rudolf Steiner would call independent initiation. They're getting mm -hmm. knowledge from multiple sources, like the mm -hmm. old ideal of the hermetic tradition. So we can be open to knowledge from all kinds of different sources. 
And so around 1899, we see that happening. Now, at the same time, we see a tremendous revolution in scientific knowledge that has completely transformed the planet in the 100 plus years since 1899. Now, this made possible more sharing freely of spiritual knowledge around the world through the modern technologies, everything from book printing to then the radio, then to television, and now to the internet. One of the tremendous movements we've had in recent times is something I often refer to as both a blessing and a curse. And that is we have unprecedented access within human recorded history to spiritual knowledge and wisdom from traditions all over the world and things that used to be highly secret. You spend your whole life looking for fragments of this. Things that were highly secret, you can now buy a book on it for like $16.95, like some of the very secret Taoist formulas for internal alchemy and internal transformation. Until the 1980s, this stuff was super hidden. Now you can get that information. So that's the benefit. It's an incredible time to be alive with access to so much information. But the curse of it is that a lot of this information has come out piecemeal, and it's come out in fragments, and often sensationalized, or sometimes slightly twisted, so that we don't necessarily get a clear picture of how all the pieces fit together. And we then run up against the problem that was talked about in classical traditions, which really emphasized staying in one tradition and going deep in it, where they said if you dig a lot of small holes, you'll never find water. But if you dig deep in one place, then you'll get to the water, with the water being the metaphor for spiritual knowledge, spiritual development. And so we live at this incredible time with so much information available. But the challenge is, how are we going to put these broken pieces back together into a coherent worldview that leads to a path of personal development that at the time that we cross through the gate of death, we've actually transformed our consciousness, transformed our subtle bodies in a way that's permanent, and that leads to a bettering of the human condition across the planet. So looking at that particular map of the yugas, whether one believes that the yugas, Kali Yuga will last for a great period longer, which is believed by many Himalayan traditions, or you follow the line of the Babaji lineage and of the European Rosicrucians, that it ended in 1999 with a difficult transition period happening now, we can then find an overlay of other maps to see a more complex picture of what's happening. So as an example, in the Western tradition, one of the maps to understand particular time periods and what is the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of that age, is mm. the map that comes from the Christian tradition in Europe and also used by the Euro European Rosicrucians for understanding the seven archangelic ages. Mm. So our great cosmic clock is of course the precession of the equinox where the visible position of the sun at the vernal equinox moves back slightly every year until yes. in a period of 2,160 years the sun's apparent position at the vernal equinox against the stellar background has moved 30 degrees back in the zodiac through one entire sign of the zodiac. So to go one degree takes 72 years. That's the average lifetime of a human being. 
the entire process takes 2,160 years. So with, as understood in classical traditions, like let's say the Vedic tradition from India, all of the planetary forces that exist around us are the repositories of particular divine energies, particular divine states of consciousness. And they're part of a divine timing system, which was the original foundation of things like Vedic astrology, which we can talk a little bit about in just a moment. But with the understanding of this, if it takes 2,160 years for the sun's position in the great cosmic clock to go through mm -hmm. one of the 12 fold divisions of the zodiac, and we divide that amongst the uh, seven archangels, each of which rules over a particular planetary force, then that gives us a little over 300 years for every one of these archangelic rulerships. Mm -hmm. And when we overlay that map on top of this Yuga map, as seen by Babaji lineage, uh, European Rosicrucians, then the most recent shift happened in the year 1879. 1879 was the beginning of the 300 plus year rulership of what's considered to be the highest of all the archangels in the Western tradition. So that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so the being of Archangel Mikael is mm -hmm. the being that becomes dominant here, and he's the Archangel of the Sun. So it's the, all the powers of the Sun coming forward. Now we can see that from 1879, overlapping that 1899 end of the Kali Yuga Dark Age. So the mm -hmm. interesting part of this is that again, the forces coming from the end of the Dark Age into an age of light have led to a tremendous release of spiritual knowledge even though it is in a very fragmented and not completely coherent form at the moment. Mm. But another aspect of this is if we look at, okay, if we're in a period of this solar power, the sun is the source of light. So if we're going to transition from this dark age, having this archangelic age of light is certainly a good thing. We have time of the sun. That There's another aspect to it as well, and that is the specific qualities that are associated with Archangel Mikael in the Western tradition are things like the aspect of Mikael where he is the regent of the cosmic intelligence. So what they mm. mean when they say that in the Western tradition, Mikael is the regent of the cosmic intelligence, is that long ago, the primeval gnosis, the original knowledge coming from the divine, broke up and split amongst the different traditions of the world. So in one particular place, they received certain aspects of spiritual knowledge and wisdom. Other aspects went to another tradition. And of course, there were some universal uh, teachings that went to everybody, things that were so fundamental that you couldn't do without it. But you then had some aspects of specialization. So if you look at things like, let's say the subtle body maps coming from yeah. India versus those in China, versus those in Greece, versus those in Egypt, etc. Mm. You can see a particular emphasis on pieces of knowledge that were really cultivated in different traditions. And when you put those pieces of knowledge together, it often illuminates something much bigger, much more profound, when you can see it from these multiple perspectives. So with Archangel Mikael being the regent of the cosmic intelligence, and him having the current rulership of the age that we live in right now, 
starting in 1879, mm. then this helps to explain what's happening with this growth of a free esotericism that I described a moment ago, really cultivated by the Theosophical Society, which not coincidentally began its work around the world in the 1870s at the time of Archangel Mikael becoming the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. So if we see it from that perspective, what I just mentioned about the blessing and the curse of the release of all of the spiritual information is yes. deeply entwined with the current archangelic rulership. And so what Archangel Mikael tries to develop with this release of the information is to create a healing of the human understanding of who we are as spiritual beings in a physical body and the earth itself as a alchemical laboratory for beings to go through spiritual development processes through physical incarnation. And so the goal of this is to be able to create a new spiritual science, to create a universal spiritual science that brings in the knowledge that was broken up amongst all the different traditions into a coherent, unified system. And every human being is challenged to work with these pieces and create a system that works for their particular path of development. Mm -hmm. So if we see it from that perspective, we're moving into a very interesting time right now where we need to find the pieces that are directly relevant to us as individuals and to be able to create a coherent spiritual path out of that if we're not going to follow a very set path from a specific tradition, which otherwise would lead us to our goal. But for a lot of people today, their soul is simply not in resonance with that. They're not ready to have a particular human being become their guru that gives yes. them the answers to everything. They want to be able to figure it out for themselves. Now, this is greatly challenging because it requires much more independent thinking and very deep thinking activity and learning and searching and questioning to unite this together into a system that actually works for us today. But I do think this is a very helpful map, seeing the overlap of the map of the yugas with the archangelic ages to understand what is the opportunity in this specific time period. And I'll just end up this little bit by saying, this is something that's reflected very deeply in Vedic astrology. In Vedic astrology, there's the understanding of something they call the Dasha system. The Dasha system does not exist in Western astrology, and it's a great loss for Western astrology, because the Dasha system is when particular planetary forces get activated in an individual lifetime. And the way it's described in the Vedic tradition is that it will show you through these activations of the planetary forces in your own chart when certain karmas are ripening in your life. The karmic seeds that we've laid before, they could ripen at any moment, but this tells you when that ripening will be. So on a microcosmic level, the knowledge within Vedic astrology of a dasha system becomes a map for an individual to know where their specific karmas will ripen and certain mm -hmm. challenges in life will come up and certain opportunities in life will come up, just as with the grand map of the yugas and the archangelic ages, we can get a sense of when certain karmas are ripening for all of humanity mm. for us to go through as part of a system of initiation trials 
to take us closer to our goal. I think that's a, a great introduction to your synthetic approach. I mean, I feel a lot of resonance with it because I'm in my own work, I'm also someone who's deeply entrenched in a number of different cross-cultural and interdisciplinary disciplines in a way. So I've, I feel that your energy is really bringing a number of different maps together, the larger cosmic maps from multiple traditions, as well as the inner maps. And there's something there's something really potent there because I do think that these maps are helpful in orientation. So what you've just described with the Archangel uh, Michael, I think someone who's just caught in the in the weeds here where we are on the planet right now feels that things are breaking down. I mean, there's a major systems breakdown right now when we're obviously in a reboot. But if you don't have any orientation, you don't have any particular kind of spiritual lens or worldview can be enormously distressing. Even there's can be a sense of hopelessness. And what I what I also resonate with the Yutekshwar model, I mean, he, he's one of the fewer that suggests we're out already out of the Kali Yuga. So this kind of doomsday a a attitude that we're in the darkest age and, you know, it's an age of degeneration. Actually, we're in Dwapara, Dwapara which is on the upswing. We're heading towards the Satya Yuga and we've already passed. And this is an optimistic, I think, encouraging, uh, you know, uh, an, an analysis out of, the holy science that we're actually in the midst of the Dwarpa or the early the early phase of the Dwarpa Yuga, and we're on we're not on the downswing anymore. We're on the upswing to Satya, which means consciousness is expanding. This accounts for our interest in psychedelics, the psychedelic revolution, for example. This accounts for how you know interest in spiritual traditions may be devoid of the dogma you know, taking it out of out of uh, a literal interpretation and putting it back in a more esoteric lens. This is more this is happening because of where the collective humanity is on the trajectory, the long trajectory, the long arc. And I, I, I you use the seven um, seven angel model, which I'm not familiar with, uh, but I am familiar more familiar with the 12 zodiacal uh, signatures, let's say. And there again, you find yourself in a transition between the Piscean and the Aquarian age. And what is the Aquarian signature, if not is decentralization. So across the world, we're seeing how we're going from a hierarchical model to a more mandalic model. And if you get that, if you understand where we're heading and you understand the signature that it's, it's um, the signature of the new age, you, you, can, you can be receptive to it rather than averse to it and holding on to the old age. <clears throat> so I think this kind of work that you're doing, it prepare, it's preparing people. It's giving them a framework to understand what's actually happening around us as a necessary kind of civilizational death so that there can be a rebirth. And this, this model that you're using the seven angels, you know, I'm not very familiar with it, but I, I, I'd pause here to invite you now to give it, a little bit more breadth, if you will. I mean, I'm not familiar with Rosicrucian, Rosicrucian philosophy. Maybe we can start by giving an introduction to where it comes from and how you intersected with it personally. Okay. So my connection in this lifetime with the Rosicrucian tradition 
uh, really came about as a result of a particular spiritual awakening experience that I had after I left the Marine Corps. And I had been an instructor as uh, in the nuclear, biological, chemical warfare survival field for some time. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I had a particular awakening experience on the on a summer solstice. I didn't even know it was the summer solstice. I wasn't tracking those things at that time. But I had some remarkable experiences. And in hindsight, I could understand that these were linked to things that are discussed in classical traditions, particularly the Western tradition, for example, of what in the Jewish Kabbalah is described as the seven heavenly halls. It was understood that we pass through these seven heavenly halls between death and rebirth in the ancient traditions. They're illustrated in the Egyptian book of coming forth into light, which we call the Egyptian book of the dead. It then passed into the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. They talked about the seven halls. It's directly related to the seven planetary forces. And so in this classical tradition, they understood that we have a particular journey that we go through. As we leave one lifetime, we learn the particular lessons and benefits from it. And then we come back into the next lifetime. We pass through the seven halls, which is actually what one experiences at a higher spiritual level without the physical references for the spiritual beings and activities around each of the seven planetary forces. So I had had particular experiences, particularly related to the sphere of the sun during my awakening experience, where I remembered certain things about passing through the sphere of the sun, which of course mm -hmm. is related to Archangel Mikael. So without going into too much detail about my own experience, I then came to a place where it's like, by that morning of that incredible experience, I was like, okay, my life has changed. I need to now figure out what just happened and get a frame of reference for this and how it's going to change my life moving forward. So I began to research a lot of different esoteric material from many different traditions, and I found a one-to-one -one match between what I had experienced and certain things described in some of the most advanced work of Rudolf Steiner, again, mm. who is essentially the most advanced Rosicrucian teacher ever to make themselves public, because it's a great sacrifice for an advanced teacher of a tradition to make themselves public uh, because it really changes their whole life from that point on. But I found that this was explaining exactly what I had experienced, it puts it into context. And so with that, I then went in with both feet into the European mm -hmm. Rosicrucian tradition, which was I was very resonant with and made immediate sense to me, spent many years working my way through college while I was working on my PhD in studying this vast corpus of, of knowledge. Steiner himself, if you have his published books, which is maybe a couple of dozens of books that he wrote, and then all of his collected lectures, it's like around 350 volumes. It's massive. It's an encyclopedia of deep mm -hmm. esoteric knowledge. And so there's so much in it. Steiner himself said when he gave this work out in the early 1900s, he says, the work I'm giving out is actually not so much for right now. It's for the people mm -hmm. coming at the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, the year 2000, that we're living in right now, that we're part of those people he was talking about would incarnate at this time. He said this would be one of the greatest mass incarnations of advanced initiates from multiple traditions 
at the same time that has ever occurred on the earth because of what was happening with some of these time cycles and certain things that need to happen on the planet at this time. And so there's a huge amount of material then being given out by him in a very clear preparatory way for us right now, the people coming for this, in a way that's going to give us access to formerly hidden information. So that's how I got started with it. And then it's it's very it's very synchronistic with what the Dalai Lama has recently said about the Tantras, where these were very, very hidden, ear whispered student disciple only revealed after a lot of intense preparation. And in the last 50 years, the, the lifetime of the Dalai Lama, those teachings have become public in such a radical way. Un, never before mm -hmm. has that much esoteric knowledge been delivered so just to come back to your overarching point this am i correct in assuming that this is what mikhail energy it's an indication of a mikhail energy would is that sort of the how you would describe it this sort of illumination a period of vast illumination of sacred knowledge because of the the necessity of the long cycle in which we find ourselves absolutely that's definitely a part of it so first we have to understand, because we live in a very materialistic age, it's hard for people even to conceptualize mm. the nature of non-physical beings and non-physical processes because we're so materialistic. And so if we're going to understand something like an archangel or these higher beings, we need to understand that in the Western tradition, there's a, a system coming originally out of the Kabbalah, then into Christian esotericism, that has to do with different ranks of spiritual beings. And when we talk about ranks, we're talking about levels of evolution and maturity, ages like generations of these beings. So at the very top, we have the seraphim, the spirits of love. They are the closest to the Godhead. They're the most ancient. They are so highly developed, their nature is love. And because of that, they are said to have an unbroken view of the Godhead, of the divine, which you can only have when your beingness is love, because love is the essence of becoming one, of union, not being separate. Then you have the cherubim and the curiatites and the dynamis and a whole group of other beings at multiple levels. Every one of these are beings that have been emanated from the one, from the Godhead, from the unified source, to go through processes of becoming self-aware and to be able to become creative beings in the cosmos. So in the Rosicrucian tradition, there are certain esoteric names for each of these ranks of beings. Archangels are just one rank, and they're relatively close to us compared to those of cherubim or seraphim. But their esoteric name indicates things related to their power and to what their function is in the world today. So a being like Archangel Mikael, as the most advanced being of this rank, connected to the sun, the source of light and heat and life for our entire solar system, is a very, very advanced being. So often these things are dealt with as a, a kind of a metaphor or some type mm. of uh, philosophical teaching. But the essence of any initiatory process is to begin to perceive these beings in a direct way in which we understand these are not just projections of my psyche. They're not just a metaphor. 
these beings are more advanced and more real than I am. They're much more mm. ancient. The old text referred to them as the great ancient ones, way older than we are. Even an angel is so far above a human being in its potential evolution that its relationship to us is very similar to a relationship of a human being with a dog. If we're good people, we take care of the dog, we look after it. And the same thing is true for the way an angel, like the guardian angel in the Western tradition, looks after a human being. Not a metaphor. It's a real thing. Right. You can become aware right. of these beings in our energy field and how they interact with us. And so a being like Archangel Mikael at a grand level of a planetary archangel administering this, it's something that is a real being that has real effects. I often like to say that human beings today are like fish in the ocean that don't know that water exists. The water is the spiritual world. It's all around us at all times. Spiritual beings are swimming through our energy fields at all times, leaving traces of emotions and thoughts and impulses as they transit through our fields. But most people have no concept of this. And yeah. so we're really at a point today as we take advantage of this opening of the Mikaelic age to create a universal spiritual science, freely taking the knowledge from multiple traditions. And we should take this as something intensely fun, pleasurable, and beneficial for ourselves. It's not like, oh, what a bunch of hard work. It's like, good God, what an incredible opportunity for people that remember past lifetimes where we would suffer and struggle for tiny little bits of knowledge from one particular tradition, to have yeah. this smorgasbord available is, is sometimes rather overwhelming. Steiner himself in the Rosicrucian tradition would talk about the way that people who are coming to incarnate at this time around the year 2000, around the turn of the century, he said that they were being prepared for this in the school of Mikael. So as we passed through the seven heavenly halls between death and rebirth, as we pass through the Sun Hall, there was a kind of cosmic school that we went through with Archangel Mikael. We received certain teachings. Yes. If, we are, if we're not advanced enough to hold that teaching clearly in our conscious mind, what happens is that the teaching goes into our will and it becomes a will impulse that drives us to find certain things, to do certain things until we can remember, like we talked about in the beginning, Remember, who am I? Why am I here? What did I incarnate to do in this incarnation? Let me let me ask a couple of questions because it's so rich. Um, <laughs> I mean, I live in Bali, right? And the, the Balinese, their ancient philosophy includes spiritual realms where there are entities and angelic beings, ethereal beings. And I, I suppose we can say, you know, it's really Western, scientifically minded, modern type people that have lost connection to a greater source and the, you know, the, the sense that there is dimensionality beyond the five senses, that that is one of our curses or our burdens of the age of the reason or the enlightenment period. But it's not true that other cultures still exist in today, whether it be the shamans in the Amazon or the First Nations elders uh, the aboriginals in Australia, there are pockets of people who still maintain this worldview. And within them, I think it's safe to say that there are not all ethereal or energetic or angelic beings have our best interest 
<laughs> that there are all, we also have to be careful. I mean, what I'm saying is that one of the things that caught my attention with what you're saying is that there, this is not just an archetype. This is not just a projection of our own unconscious, as maybe Jung would suggest. Mm -hmm. There are actual energetic beings around us all the time. And if you live in Bali and you're not making offerings on a daily basis, you the Balinese know that they leave themselves open and exposed and may possibly even vulnerable to the intersection of maybe some of the malevolent forces that also exist. So it's not all a happy family out there. And if you if you're nodding your head in agreement, then you know, what is going on in that dimension right now? Are we experiencing a heavy set knockout, heavyweight, you know, war happening on the spiritual? What is happening? As does does the Archangel Michael or the energy that it represents also have a counterpart and and what does it look like in in our in our ordinary perception particularly someone who doesn't have an esoteric lens let's say how is that war being played out if you agree that there is a kind of war happening or at least a tension between polar extremes of virtue and vice um you know what, what do you have to, any comments about that sure absolutely uh in my series on Gaia television called Sacred Geometry, I devote an entire episode to a teaching coming from the European Rosicrucian tradition that is really a part of an ancient lineage. When we talk about the Rosicrucian tradition, it became known to the public around the 1600s in Central Europe, but it's really a modern appearance of what before it was the Holy Grail tradition that started around the ninth century in Europe and before that, the Essene tradition, and before that, the Egyptian tradition. It evolves over time with this core knowledge. And mm -hmm. so as we look at this evolution of these particular impulses, we really have to go back to ancient periods of time to understand what's happening in these spiritual conflicts. Now, as a another type of very large-scale context for what's happening, then one aspect of this is that there were certain spiritual beings that were understood in earlier times to have particular agendas or activities in the physical world that are still very active today, because that's part of the way that our system is set up. So often it's described that what we have when we incarnate into the physical world in the ancient tradition was referred to as the black cube because our three-dimensional world that we live in, up and down, front and back, side to side, if we put a wall at the end of all three of those axes, axes, what we get is a cube. And so the black cube of space is shown in many old alchemical diagrams because that's what we're incarnating into. We're, we're literally incarnating into the black box of the three-dimensional world to go through a evolutionary process. Now, it's understood by the Rosicrucians that there's also planetary influences on the current evolution of the Earth as a planet. There were early, earlier planetary evolutions, and there'll be later planetary evolutions. But for the Earth evolution, the first half of it, they refer to as the Mars evolution. And that's evolution through conflict. And that is a way to evolve and to develop internal strength and to become more self-aware and self-assertive, which we do need. But the second half of Earth evolution, which they believe we're passing into now, is mm -hmm. the Mercury period. 
that's the time of healing. We have a tremendous amount of healing we need to do now for all those old Mars war-oriented right. conflictual mindsets that keep causing endless rounds of horror after horror. We have to get over that. So there is evolution through conflict, uh, but there's also the evolution through the healing process of Mercury. Now, what you find in the Rosicrucian tradition to explain this at its most core level, there's a huge range of different spiritual beings out there. If we even try to map all the different types of plants and animals on the earth, it's a gigantic catalog of different beings. How much larger is the catalog of non-physical beings existing in the universe, not only at the physical, but all the higher plane levels? So to keep it really simple, the way that it's approached in the Rosicrucian tradition is, okay, so we have the original divine. Everything is one. Everything is a unity. And mm -hmm. there's no conflict there because we're all part of the one. It's interesting that in ancient Greece, their word for the Godhead was the one in part of their esoteric schools. But then we have to evolve through splitting from the one into two, just like a fertilized egg in a mother's womb to create a new being. The one splits off into two. Now with the two, we have attraction, we have repulsion, we have dynamic movement and activity and evolution, but it can also be conflictual. So with that original impulse that connects us to the divine, this is like the middle pillar on the tree of life in the Jewish Kabbalah. It is the, the standing pillar that connects us at the microcosm to the macrocosmic sources where everything is one. And at that center, that balance point, everything is properly aligned and balanced. But in the process of a spiritual being becoming self-aware and evolving to become an independent actor in the universe, which is what happens to all these ranks of spiritual beings, including ourselves, going through the earthly experience, is that we have the particular challenge that we have to have the knowledge of the tree of good and evil as described in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. So yes. there is what is described in the Tibetan tradition as the middle path, the middle way. That's what's right. That's what's good. That's what's balanced. But even the name middle way, it means that we could go off in one direction. And that direction could be a type of spiritual development that is illusory. That's based on narcissism. That's based on our own projections. That's based on fantasy rather than reality. So there is the aspect of spirituality that could be not grounded and just self-aggrandizing and illusory in its development. But the other side is materialism. We can become completely materialistic to where we believe that nothing spiritual even exists, that everything that we think is spiritual, like human consciousness, is nothing but an epiphenomenon of some physical source like chemicals that evolve over time randomly or something like yeah. that. So we have the the Scylla and Charybdis, the rock and the whirlpool that we have to deal with. So there are certain spiritual beings that at a point in their evolution wanted to do their own thing. And they split off, became highly spiritual, highly spiritualized, and they became sources of great light because mm -hmm. light and consciousness is the exact same thing. When you experience consciousness externally, it appears as light. 
That's why you see light around the heads of the initiates in every tradition. When you experience light internally, you experience it as consciousness. It's the exact same thing. So these beings became a source of light because they expanded their consciousness to a high level. They were very spiritual beings, but it became narcissistic. It became somewhat illusory. It kind of ran off the rails. And so that's why these beings were known in the Western tradition as the Luciferic beings, because Lucifer mm. means light bearer. These beings mm. appear as great beings of light. That's why the simplistic polarity dichotomy you have in some spiritual teachings today about here's good and here's evil, it doesn't work that way. What's good is mm. always in the middle. It's always the middle path. What is dysfunctional, this could, we could call it the unskillful action that the Buddhists describe, that can go off to two opposite directions, a type of unbalanced spirituality where you don't make proper use and appreciation for the material plane and physical material incarnation for how important mm -hmm. that is in the whole process. Yes, we are spiritual beings, but there's a reason why we're put here. It's not just an illusion that we bounce out of and pretend it never happened. So that, that's like an escapist, escapist. Exactly. Spiritual, a spirituality that is sort of transcended that feels that the world itself is an illusion and therefore becomes detached or aloof. Absolutely. And that then leads to a type of illusory and ascension that you also find in some modern teachings. It's based on an emotional desire to not suffer further. It's not a true ascension where you've worked through everything and there's no further resistance internally. So on the one side, you have the Luciferic beings, which chose the spiritual path, very independent, kind of an adolescent rebellion type of thing. And then on the other side, you had the beings that love matter. And they, in fact, are involved in taking the sacred geometry patterns from the Godhead and from higher spiritual beings and literally crystallizing it, building it to create a physical plane. These beings weren't even recognized or described until the Zoroastrian tradition many thousands of years ago. And in the old Zoroastrian tradition, they were referred to as Angramenu or Araman. And so the Aramonic beings are the beings that are also later for the Gnostics called the Demiurge, the dark lord mm. of this world. And in the Egyptian tradition, we're referred to as Set. And then when the Hebrews left Egypt, and in the form of the seed syllables being transformed into another language, became Ha-Setan, or yeah, Satan, Satan, the adversary. And so these are very different beings. Today, people often, even in Christianity, they've completely mixed up they've, an, an exoteric. They've conflated Lucifer with Satan. When it doesn't even make any sense. How does this dark sclerotic being of Araman in the cave relate to a great cosmic being of pure light? It, it's not even coherent. But it's, it's led to a tremendous problem, which is that they think it's a very simple thing to, like, this is evil and this is good. So whatever I think is the thing, Whatever is opposite to it is bad, but that doesn't make any sense. If if uh, it's bad to be freezing cold, it doesn't help to be burning hot. You have to have the middle way. If you say that, you know, this gender is good, women are good, men are good, then well, the opposite gender is bad. All of these all these nonsense ideas come in because we've lost the idea of two opposite polarities and the balance in the center. So the being that holds the balance in the center becomes the key being of different traditions. 
And so for the Western Christian tradition, it's the Christos. That is the being of the middle pillar. And in the Christian mm -hmm. tradition, another of the esoteric names for Archangel Mikael is that he is the countenance of Christ, that he mm -hmm. is a being that acts in the service of Christ as holding the middle pillar and helping human beings navigate between these two opposite types of spiritual beings, the one saying, just go party, do anything you want, don't worry about your physical incarnation, if that goes straight to hell, who cares, it's all an illusion. And then the other ones that say, nothing spiritual exists, get what you can, it's fine to abuse other people to do it, because only this material existence is true. But mm -hmm. that middle pillar is the, the only one on the tree of life in the Jewish Kabbalah, if you see the actual pattern of it, it's the only one that goes all the way up to heaven and all the way down to earth. The others are partial as the two side pillars. Yeah, in the Tibetan tradition, they describe it as the non-dual union of wisdom and compassion. So the wisdom side is the deep understanding and the fundamental openness of reality. That's the illumination part. But it, if you don't, if you don't <laughs> open your heart, then you can you can fall into the wrong understanding of emptiness. Emptiness is described as something that should take you right back into the world, and that for therefore you need to have a lot of resilience and tough compassion, let's say. On the other hand, if you have the compassion part that keeps you bound to the suffering of individuals, you can have sort of burnout or hopelessness because suffering feels endless. So the two really have to come together. That's that's sort of what I'm feeling into what you're talking about with these Luciferian and satanic forces. There's something vital from both of them. One is being truly in the world and the other is having that illumination. But without the other counterpart, it falls into an extreme. Yes, absolutely. It becomes very unbalanced. So it's always a question of connecting to the middle pillar to unite the two together back into the one. I'd like to make a very quick comment based on what you were talking about with the, the Tibetan Buddhist understanding of how important the heart forces are and the development of compassion. First thing I want to say is that one way to understand what a spiritual tradition is, and I'm taking this from a, a teacher of mine, who founded the Clear Vision School of Australia, a French medical doctor named Samuel Sagan, who passed away a few years ago. And he said, a spiritual tradition is a particular group of non-physical spiritual beings and human initiates that are bringing a particular spiritual teaching to manifest on the earth, and also with a particular method of structuring the subtle bodies of their initiates so that they can grow in a particular yes. way and take certain actions. So the Buddhist tradition and the Christian tradition are two separate traditions today at this level. But if you go up, not many levels at all, one or two levels, you'll find that the Christian and Buddhist traditions overlap tremendously. They almost become one tradition. That's something I could give a lot of examples on, but I'll just mention it in passing right now. I love this direction, Robert. I mean, this is this is the heart of where I feel my, my work is, is I feel like energetically where we are in the cosmos and its trajectory is asking us to become energetically informed. And that's why the tantras from the Buddhist point of view, that's why the Dalai Lama yes. is releasing them. It doesn't yes. mean that he releases them and makes them available that everybody gets it. They are still <laughs> requires an incredible amount of commitment and diligence and discipline in order to yes. really, in order to really graft to them. But just to say that, this construction of this cosmology in which there are actual ac exterior beings in, in the Buddhist tradition, I mean, 
secular Buddhists, you know, the mindfulness revolution, for example, they, they don't really want to talk about this, but from the Tibetan tradition, all of the great sages have been in direct dialogue with angels. I mean, you can't get around it. Nagarjuna, the, the great, the great Atisha, they were in dialogue with Lama, with, with the Aryatara, with, with Prajnaparamita. They're in consort with angels of another dimension and they're receiving transmissions. And then they're, their contribution is distilling and distributing those teachings to a wider audience. They become me missionaries or mediaries. But the point is that the tantric technology is really designed for a human being to become aware of their energetic body so that they can operate in multiple dimensions simultaneously. They don't have to just disappear into the ether Actually, this body is is a well-crafted mechanism, very well suited for this environment. If it's if it's understood for what it really is, uh, fine-tuned and crafted, and so all of this is coming together now. I'm really excited. I I, I want to turn it back over to you to, to take us deeper into into the angels, into the work that you're doing with the energetic body and the sacred geometry and the sacred biology. Uh, because it's if if I'm not mistaken, you know your your mission is is really to create um, what would be called in antiquity the mystery schools to revive them in a way as a preparatory training ground for people who are serious about really understanding who they are and maximizing this life opportunity to be an agent of change and not just one that's falling into either of these binaries, but one that's really balanced on a soul level and manifesting in the world at the same time. So I, I feel there's a lot of synchronicity with what we're doing right now. And I'm mm -hmm. excited to let just let you take over again. Okay, great. Thank you. So when I created the Beska Institute, it was definitely from an inspiration of what you're talking about. It, I think we go through a process as we really wake up of based on comparative advantage of the different things I could do to be of service to the world and to others, what is the most pressing need that I have the best comparative advantage to work in? So I could have done all kinds of things, but it just became apparent that working to create a universal spiritual science to clarify and simplify very deep and profound teachings from multiple directions and unify them together and make those available to people in a way that is completely non-dogmatic and does, is not a question of believing anything up front or subscribing to, to any dogma or to having to join any organization or give away any part of your freedom, that this needed to exist simply to save people time, to be able to not have to do what I've done and spending decades with tremendous amounts of time going into putting all these pieces together but like, mm. here's the, the simple upshot of all of these different things so that you can save those decades because life is a limited time opportunity. It's going to be over before you know it. And you need to make progress on remembering who you are, remembering why you're here and what you chose to do in this incarnation. It's very common if you observe people's souls and spirits after they, they die and they transition and they look back on the world they got so lost in the difficulties yes. and trials of human life 
that when they're on the other side, without the weight of the physical body and of physical demands weighing them down, they're like, no, 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 I was, I was supposed to do this thing and I didn't do it. That becomes a terrible bardo experience for them on the other side of like, I had all that time and I didn't use the time correctly to do this. So that's my goal in working with the Vesk Institute to the limits of my ability, which is very limited to put this together and to get it out to people. That's the purpose of it. Now, I want to make a specific observation related to what you talked about with the importance of, you know, the high tantrism things within the Tibetan tradition and about how significant that is with the heart. In the Rosicrucian tradition, to make this accessible to people, there is a description, and I go into detail on this in an online class I have called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science. I talk about this in much more detail, and I give all the practices. But in the Rosicrucian tradition, they talk about six essential exercises. Now, to understand why there's six essential exercises, there's the understanding that the heart chakra, as shown in the Himalayan tradition, is a 12-petal lotus. And it's believed in the Rosicrucian tradition that six of the lotus petals have been developed in earlier stages of human evolution. And we need to fully develop the other six lotus petals. Each lotus petal is developed through a specific type of esoteric practice. And if we can develop those other six lotus petals through the six essential exercises, then the entire heart chakra becomes fully activated, starts to spin more effectively as a chakra. And at that point, it becomes the organizing center for all of the energy centers and movements of energy that create the subtle body structure in every human being. Until the heart is fully activated, there is no organizing center for the human body of energy and consciousness. And that's, I think, a very profound understanding from the Rosicrucian tradition. If you want an organizing center, you got to develop the heart. So the six essential exercises, to make it super simple, because that could be several hour discussion in itself, and I go into great detail in the online course, they are to observe and then direct everything in our thinking. This is directly connected to mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. To observe and then direct in a skillful way everything in our feeling forces. And then to observe and direct everything in our will forces, all of our willpower, all of the actions we take in the world. It's very similar to the Tibetan thought, speech, and action. But this is thinking, feeling, and willing in the Rosicrucian tradition. And then you have to develop tremendous amounts of positivity to develop the fourth lotus petal. That positivity is essential. They always tell this uh, story in the Rosicrucian tradition about a parable of the Christ. Christ is walking down the road with his disciples. They pass a dead dog. The dog is, is dead. It stinks. It's rotting. It's uh, very ugly to look at. There are maggots crawling in the corpse. And all of the disciples turn away except Christ, who looks at the animal as they walk past, and then he turns to the disciples and smiles and says, what beautiful teeth that animal had. And so it's an illustration of this thing. We have to have this tremendous positivity for whatever challenges life brings to us. That's one of the things that really marks a state of spiritual development. Now, the, the fifth one comes from not getting sold on our own current state of development and always realizing we have further to go and having an openness to new information 
and tremendous equanimity toward that new information, to see things from radically different perspectives than we saw it before, and to be open to new ways of seeing and understanding. Because it tends to be as we get older, we get very crusty, and we like to see things the way that we see it. You gotta stay fresh, you gotta stay open to it. That's one of the things that's happening now with the psychedelic revolution. People start to lock down the bolts in their heads as they get older, and then it gets blown open by the psychotropics. And then all of these need to be brought together into a unified system. The observation and the direction of our thinking, of our feeling, of our willing, of our positivity, of our openness and equanimity. And that is what develops the heart chakra to become the organizing center for the entire body of energy. And so we can start to see these particular spiritual practices as being something that has a direct reflection in our body of energy, because it is the subtle body structure that is our pearl of great price. We don't take the physical body with us when we die. We can't take our physical things that we've built up until now. The only thing you, you take with you is the structure of your subtle bodies. That is the key thing. And if you follow the practices of a certain spiritual tradition, they are specialized to create certain structures in your subtle body so that you can do the activities that a particular tradition is here for to do that thing. So like, for example, one of the things that the European Rosicrucian tradition specializes for and helps mm -hmm. to then provide for the entire planet is to illuminate thinking at a higher level, to make a type of scientific thinking become clairvoyant to become the deep thinking, which is highly energetically taxing, to create a new spiritual science. That's one of the things that gets structured through the Rosicrucian tradition. If you train in some other tradition, they may be structuring your subtle body for some other very important task in the greater scheme of things. But this is one of those million dollar concepts that's been almost lost today. What we're doing, every time that we use our mind, every time we use our feelings, every time we take an action, it's a cause set in motion. Not only does it generate karma, it also has the effect that it creates a structure in the subtle body. It will activate certain energy centers in your body, but may sedate other ones. It will create links between certain energy centers in the body that starts to create sacred geometric patterns in and around the human energy body. And so in every spiritual tradition at the higher levels, the great initiates understand that you can understand who someone is by examining their subtle body structure. It is the formula of who that person is as a unique spiritual being and how far they've evolved and what they're still working on at this time. So I find that people just become aware of this concept, just having the concept helps. One thing I think is of tremendous value for everybody to realize is that spiritual beings are working with us at all times to give yeah. us inspirations, ideas, for people that haven't developed their consciousness enough to get that idea directly, it'll go into your will forces for you to take some action, to go to this place, to get this book, to talk to this person, something where they're trying to get you closer to, to realizing it. But it's all about being able to get that knowledge from these higher beings. And that's why in the Nepalese illustrations, they show the energy field above the human head this is deeply tied into both the Tibetan and Indian traditions, what you find in Nepal, that you'll see the line of energy above the head and they'll show specific energy centers as they go above and the geometric structure 
of those energy centers, because this is what allows you to get what, again, taking a great term from Dr. Samuel Sagan of the Clear Vision School, he would call packed thought forms. Higher spiritual beings communicate with us through packed thought forms, a packet of information, which may have mm. tones, it may have visuals, it may have all types of deep content. It's like a transmission in the Indian yes. tradition that you get in a second. And if you try to explain it to somebody else, it could take you hours trying to unpack that transmission into one word after another. A download. But, but the download is instantaneous. So just having these concepts, tying that back in, just having these concepts is something that allows you to then get more specific information in the downloads from these beings. So for example, in the Western tradition, if you don't know the difference between a physical body, an etheric life body, an astral body, and other higher bodies, there's not much that they can teach you about the subtle bodies. That's why in the Indian tradition, they have the knowledge of all the koshas, so that you know there's different subtle bodies. So when you connect to these higher beings, they can give you specific information you need at that time. Same thing in the Tibetan tradition, very specific terminology and concepts related to aspects of the subtle bodies. Because if we don't have that in our consciousness field, then there's nowhere for the more advanced knowledge from these beings to land. They can only yeah. give us general information. Just like a person, if they're going to get, they can't get knowledge of calculus if they can't do simple arithmetic. So that's why getting certain spiritual concepts in our minds is not purely a mind game. It is actually setting a foundation to get more advanced information from these beings. Yeah, preparation. I, I, I'm as I'm listening to you. I'm thinking, oh, we're, we're going to run out of time soon, and I'm, <laughs> I'm such enjoying it because you've you've opened up another door, and with such synchronicity between traditions. I mean, when you were describing the levels, and you're sort of you were sort of motioning that at higher levels, the differences between these traditions start to break down a little bit. Did I get that correct? I mean, yes, particularly certain you know, traditions, for, they're very tightly connected. Mm -hmm. You know, like we don't know much about the Greek mysteries other than there may have been usage of psychedelics. Some argue that the the gods in the Greek pantheon were known to be archetypal not and projections of the mind. I'm not so, so sure that that's true, um, but I, I'm hearing from you that the Rosicrucian tradition comes out of Egyptian and Greek lineage let's say and as i've been thinking about my own work bridging east and west too i i wonder sometimes where the traditions were intersecting sometimes i think somewhere in the northeast india greeks and indians were in the sub you know the subcontinent were in dialogue and that there's so much commonality between potential psychedelic usage and subtle body tantric work that even the words ambrosia and amrita, for example, are really symbols of something very similar, that there, there is an attempt in the human endeavor to realize oneself as being a soul or angel. Like that's, that's common. Whether it's Taoist alchemy, tantric, Himalayan tantras, whatever they were doing in, in Greece, the alchemical traditions of the Renaissance. Now you're introducing me to the Rosicrucians. I, I think there's so much synergy here. 
And it brings me full circle to the conversation starter with, with the big picture of this being a time where we put aside a lot of the differences and minutia. I mean, I'm not a proponent of the new age. I think that, that a lot of people are getting lost by just dumping things lightweight into their shopping cart and uh, sort of everything is all, it's all good. And, mm-hmm. you know, everything is really the same. I, I mean, you've invested an enormous amount of energy and life, precious life work into really going into deep, deep places and seeing synchronetic, syncretic overlaps. Um, But I I just, I'm, I'm excited by it because from the big picture, people who are listening right now, you know, I feel need an orientation, you know, that, that they're not here to just ride the corporate ladder and, take care of their families, although that is important, of course, but this idea that we are growing to the limits of our materialistic paradigm Mm -hmm. and crossing a threshold to realize or reclaim things from our Eastern and Western traditions that were really vital to us. It's almost like coming full circle. So I just want to, I just want to offer back, you know, if there's a, a way to close up the loop because I think we could talk endlessly about it. I'm really excited. I feel grateful to have met you. I feel particularly grateful for all the um, work that you've done to cobble this together into something coherent. I really respect the fact that it's open and non-institutionalized. I think that is a great service, honestly, because I think if you can preserve the spirit of the tradition without the dogma, you've made your life work meaningful. I mean, I really do. I think you've found that middle pillar by saying this is important to be a spiritual, to remember your spiritual being, but to remember the limits of being a card carrying spiritual being and exclusory. Uh, But I just, you know, I want to convey my appreciation. And if there are ways that you like to, a message that you want to give a way that you want to close this, close the discussion or close the loop, uh, please feel free, you know, to, to end with a, a inspiring message for people or to, to move it back into a per- one person that there's people out there that, you know, need that last little bit of message. I'll just turn it over to you to, to sort of convey what it is from your heart. Okay. Thank you. Well, the, the thing that really I think is in my heart all the time in doing this work and what I like to convey to people is once again, we have a very limited time here in this physical incarnation. It's easy to get caught up in all the challenges that we have here. It's very easy to get caught up in distractions to deal with our particular types of suffering, to to end up frittering away the time. But the time here is very precious and we need to make a major part of our incarnation in the beginning was the memory. So every person needs to be honest with themselves. How far have I gone on this path of remembering who am I? Why am I here? And what did I choose to do in this incarnation? Because I guarantee you, when you pass through the gate of death and on the other side, you remember all those things that you didn't spend enough time working to remember in your earthly incarnation, there is a suffering that is associated with it. There's not only the suffering that we have because we did not accomplish what we came here to do because we got too lost. There is all of the suffering of the other people we were supposed to help that we didn't help that we didn't do the work we came here to do, then it becomes an avalanche of all the unfulfilled karmic responsibilities that people haven't pulled off. 
So I don't want to say this to people as just like giving them a weight, like, oh, now I got a karmic responsibility I have to do. This is actually something to give you a going toward value will be the most pleasurable thing of your life. The most important and pleasurable thing of my entire life as far as being a spiritual being in the physical world and outside of some of my relationships with certain people that brought me wonderful gifts was being able to remember enough of who I am and why I'm here to be able to, in whatever imperfect way, work toward that goal. It's something that it's, it's like you were asleep your whole life and then you wake up and remember who you are and why you're here. It adds an energy and a purpose and a light to everything. And when you then begin to open up the organs of spiritual perception to perceive that we are surrounded by a non-physical world of spiritual planes, spiritual beings, it's not a metaphor, it's real, that that's something that takes away one of the great background fears in human beings today, the fear of annihilation, the fear of being extinguished, mm -hmm. the fear that at death, there's nothing else that our materialistic world will tell you. That's not the case. When you remember who you are, then what comes after that is remembering the process of incarnations before that and the process of incarnations to come. And it opens up so much love and appreciation for the people around you in this lifetime who you will often begin to remember were with you in previous lifetimes and some of your karma and struggles with them. But you become so grateful for how so many people and so many non-physical beings have worked so hard to give you this chance to be here now and to do this work and to become aware of, again, what is it that is your cutting edge point right now? What do you need to work on in yourself to get to these levels? Again, I highly recommend the six essential exercises in the Rosicrucian tradition. You can find analogs to that in the Buddhist tradition and many other traditions. So go where you wanna go for that. But you need to find a pathway to work on your own core development, but also remember at the same time what's said in the Rosicrucian tradition, that for every step that you take forward in your own personal development and developing your own spiritual powers or siddhas, you need to take three steps forward in developing your, core, your core heart energy, yes. your orientation to the spiritual world, and of acts of service to other people. Because in the Rosicrucian tradition, one of the sayings is that everything that you gain on the path is meant to be put at the service of other people. You can have fun, you can have your life, you can do whatever you want to do, but that's the point of it. If you're not putting it to the service of other people, you're separating yourself from the greatest experience in all spiritual life, which is union with other people, going back to the one. Yes. We can even perceive when we perceive non-physical beings that you may perceive a being that appears to be one great being, but then other smaller beings start separating out of that totality. And you realize that these beings can combine together. Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School had a saying that he called combinescence, that beings can, in a non-physical world, without a physical body, you can literally unite and merge with other beings. It's an incredible experience. It's what we all want in some type of tantric sexual union is to become one so you can't feel where you end and the other person begins because it takes you back to the divine. 
you unify back to the one. So if we're not providing service to other people, it's separating us from being able to unify back to the one. Because I'll leave you with this, in the Rosicrucian tradition, all of us in humanity have a particular name as a rank of spiritual beings. And we're called spirits of love and freedom. And all the challenges of our being here is for a very beneficial purpose. Even those detrimental beings I spoke about before, they need to be here to give us something to push against, to develop strength. And so we're called spirits of love and freedom because we have to simultaneously hold the twin values with the middle path of being able to be completely free and independent and choose our own path in life and do things that other people may not believe in or understand through our own inner strength. We have to have that freedom, but it has to go hand in hand with love, which is the ability to unify and become one with other beings, which brings us back to the divine. And that's what the path is all about. It's a constant dynamic activity. We keep going through the circle and going up in an upward spiral of our knowledge and evolution. And this is an amazing time to be alive. There's more information available now than any time in recorded history. Take advantage of it and turn your life into something that's a, a spiritual delight, because that's the opportunity we're given right now. Dr. Robert, thank you so much. What an amazing ride. I, I look forward to having further conversations with you. It ends on a, you know, a great note of inspiration. The union of uh, freedom and love is it's it's how my recent pilgrimage to uh, Java with a Tibetan master just last month ended. The, um, the pilgrimage theme came up synchronistically around the what's called the union of Shiva and Buddha, which was in Indonesia, centuries ago, there was a syncretic tradition of Tantra that was both uniting Shiva and Buddhism, which got lost, but is only now being revived. And when I talked to the masters of the land about it, they were saying that Shiva represents the, the uh, expansion of consciousness, freedom, and Buddha represents the love connection to the world. And so there you have the middle pillar beautifully uh, wrapping up your conversation on the Luciferian and satanic forces and finding the middle, middle pillar. So I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much again for all your contribution and all you're doing to revive the mystery schools. And uh, until the next time, uh, all best wishes to you and all with all your work. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I'd love to come back for us to take this further. And you really dropped a bombshell at the end there about the union of the Shiva and Buddha impulses, because one of the most advanced spiritual traditions on the planet is Kashmiri Shaivism. And so most people in the West don't know about it. So I'd love to talk further with you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. That'll, that'll leave us for something to digest and process <laughs> next time. T till soon. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.